This morning we're in Ezekiel chapter 10 and the start of chapter 11, the first half. And I've called this Israel's unrepentance causes God's presence to depart from the temple. So let's do the memory verse. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. We're going to talk about the new covenant more next week. Let's pray for today. Father, I thank you for this opportunity and Lord, the glorious privilege we have to have your word freely available to us. And Lord, we're just praying for China before where many people do not have access to the Bible. And so we thank you uh, that we do and we pray that they will be able to get access to the scriptures so they can grow in their faith as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, quick revision, we saw the principle that God does not judge the righteous with the wicked. And Abraham interceded with God for Lot. He said, far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And so this principle that God does not judge the righteous with the wicked. And one of the applications we got from that was that Evidence for the pre-trib rapture, God will remove the righteous when he judges the wicked, which is one of the purposes of the tribulation. And another thing we saw was God does not delight in judging or disciplining people or nations. He does not like it. It grieves him. And how do we know? Well, What did Ezekiel do when he actually saw the judgment start to happen in his vision? He wept. He fell down. Oh, Lord God, you know, are they all going to die? And he just, he was broken. Jesus, when he saw the judgment come upon the nation of Israel, in his mind he could see it. The Roman armies coming and surrounding Jerusalem in AD 70 and destroying that and the hundreds of thousands and millions of people who would die. In that judgment. Yes, it was deserved, but it still broke his heart. Jesus, what did he say? He said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How I wish I could gather you as a hen gathers her chicks. So, there's an interesting little story in the Gospels, and it's Jesus rebuking James and John because they had a critical spirit. And what happened was that Jesus and James and John, the disciples, were walking towards Jerusalem, and the Samaritans didn't like the Jews, and they didn't welcome anyone if they were heading towards Jerusalem. And so, basically, they refused to let Jesus in. And so Luke 9, 52-56 tells this story. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? But Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. So God's heart is to save people, not destroy them. And so one of the attributes of God is that he cares for people. He loves people. And this critical spirit is very dangerous because if we have a critical spirit, we will tear people down instead of building them up. Galatians 5, 13-15, it says, For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you're always biting and devouring one another, watch out, beware of destroying one another. And the opposite of that critical spirit is God's heart, 
You can see this in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 to 6. It says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. So you know, we can have differences in what we believe, and that's okay. We always will. But how we deal with those differences, it can be done in a critical spirit, where those differences can pull us apart, or it can be done in a spirit of love, where it can actually make us strong. And when I was teaching through the book of Revelation, I shared this story, how Lindsay teaches a pre-trip rapture. But one of his best friends, also a very famous theologian, he was the opposite. He was a post-trip rapture. And they'd argue about it, but at the end of the day, they'd stop arguing, shake hands, and then get on with having fellowship. And so they could agree to disagree. So this week, Ezekiel chapter 10 and the first part of chapter 11. So the four main points we're going to cover today are God's presence, or the Shekinah glory, leaves the temple. And that's one of the major themes in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel's vision of God and his chariot throne in chapter 10. The third is the judgment of the false prophets and false teachers, Ezekiel 11, 1 to 13. And the fourth, and we'll finish this next week, the promise of the regathering of Israel and renewed relationship with God, including looking forward to the new covenant, which we are privileged to enjoy today. So firstly, God's Shekinah glory leaves the temple. Again, it's one of the main themes that goes throughout the book of Ezekiel. In the start of the book, it leaves. At the end of the book, it comes back. And so I'm just going to go through the verses that talk about this and list them out so you can see the progressions. As we go through the rest of the book, you can kind of understand what's happening. You put it all together. Now, why is it happening? Firstly, the key verse which explains why God's presence is leaving the temple is Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 6. It says, Furthermore, he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel commits here to make me go far away from my sanctuary. So, for me, and if you were a Jew, especially a faithful Jew, imagine being Ezekiel and seeing God's presence go away from the temple. And we'll get into more about why this would be really difficult for a God-fearing Jew. Sad and heart-wrenching as you see God slowly, unwillingly, reluctantly, gradually and stepwise move away from where his physical presence, the Shekinah glory, had been dwelling above the cherubim on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies ever since Solomon dedicated the temple to the Lord you know, about 400 years prior to this time. So, And why is that happening? Well, sin. The majority of Jews had rejected God's leadership and authority over them. They were rebelling against God. And that's what sin is. It's rebellion against God. Now, I want to try and help you understand what this would mean for the Jews to be in their culture, their religion, and what this means for them. It would be an understatement to say that this was a major blow or a great disappointment. You know how the Jews, the, the religious Jews today, the Orthodox Jews, they, they go to the Western Wall and they pray and they want to get as close as they can to the original temple, where the original temple stood. And So basically, the temple for them, it's almost like an idol. And why is it so important to them? Because it represents the presence of God. So, this is a hypothetical thing, right? Okay, Imagine that, you know, as a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Just imagine what it would be like if God took his Holy Spirit from inside of you and you weren't a Christian anymore. Your whole identity is gone. You know, you're now unsaved. Of course, that can't happen. Hebrews 13.5 says, the promise is that God will never leave us or forsake us, but that's the feeling that I believe the Jew would have felt, that sense of identity. God is in the temple. This is where we pray to. This is who we pray to. Now, God, 
doesn't just live in the temple. So his moving from the temple doesn't mean that he's left his people completely. It's just a part of his discipline. But for the Jews, the temple and the presence of God, that was a big thing. And so they'd made an idol out of this temple. So let's go through these verses. The initial coming into Solomon's temple of God's Shekinah glory around 400 years earlier is found in 2 Chronicles 7, 1-3. So when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. So that's a Shekinah glory. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. So that's 400 years before the time we're talking about when God is about to judge Jerusalem. So now we come to where God's Shekinah glory leaves the temple just before the Babylonian army destroys it. So Ezekiel 9, chapter 3, and also the same thing is said in chapter 10, verse 4. And this is where the Shekinah glory moves from above the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies to the entrance of the temple. Now the glory of the Lord God of Israel had gone up from the cherub, where it had been, to the threshold of the temple. So then, Ezekiel chapter 10, verses 18 and 19, and the glory, the Shekinah glory moves from the temple entrance to the chariot throne and away. And so when it says the cherubim here, it's actually talking about the, the vision that Ezekiel's having, and there's these cherubim, these angels, outside the temple with the throne of God on top of them. It's this amazing vision we'll read about soon. And Ezekiel 10, 18-19, Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the doorway of the temple and stood over the cherubim. That's the chariot throne I was talking about. And the cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, the wheels were beside them, and they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. So, moved from the Holy of Holies to the doorway, and now on top of this chariot throne, and then the cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. So basically they have lift off. They're gone. They're moving away from the temple. But let's go forward to the millennial reign when Jesus is going to come back, right? Jesus is going to build a new temple and it's going to be functional for the thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus Christ. And so this is what it says in Ezekiel 43, 1-5. Afterward, he brought me to the gate, the gate that faces toward the east. Remember, this is not the same temple now. This is the millennial temple. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city. And that's what we're reading about in chapters 8 through 11. The visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Chiba. And that's the vision we read about in chapter 1. I fell on my face, and the glory of the Lord came into the temple by way of the gate which faces toward the east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So, even though this is bad news for the Jews, God gives them this promise that he's going to come back. But it's not going to be straight away. We're going to find out how God is going to deal with them soon. Now, prophecy, everything that happens, especially concerning the nation of Israel, was already written down before it happened. So I'm going to read from Second Chronicles. This is the time of Solomon, and this is God telling them that he would destroy the temple if they disobeyed. And this also helps us to see why the Jews place such an emphasis on the temple, why it's so important to them and why they are so keen to rebuild the temple today. So 2 Chronicles 7, 12-22 
Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place, that's the temple, the new temple he just built, for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, that's all his discipline, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from the wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. See why it's special for the Jews? Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked to do according to all that I have commanded you and if you keep my statutes and my judgments then I will establish the throne of your kingdom as I covenanted or promised with David your father saying you shall not fail to have a man as ruler in Israel. Verse 19 But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments which I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them then I will uproot them from my land which I have given them and this house which I have sanctified for my name I will cast out of my sight and will make it a proverb and a byword among the peoples, that is, the surrounding nations. Verse 21 continues, And as for this house which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and this house, that is, the land of Israel and the temple? Verse 22, Then they will answer, Because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, and embraced other gods, and worshipped them, and served them. Therefore he has brought all this calamity on them. So, Solomon's just dedicating the temple, and God's telling them that, yep, you're going to worship other gods, and this is what's going to happen. So, again, with the nation of Israel, just about everything regarding what happened to them was predicted for what happened. Now, move on to Ezekiel's vision of the glory of God in chapter 10. Remember this started in chapter 8, and the whole thing is this vision of corruption and judgment at the temple in Jerusalem. Now, we've been looking at the sin, various aspects of the sin of the nation, and now we have this glimpse of the glory of God. It's like a, a massive contrast. We see God's goodness and his perfection. And then we see man's sin. We know who God is and therefore we know who we are. And this is the same thing that he saw in chapter 1, where he saw the, what I call and other people call the chariot throne. And as Ezekiel 43 said, 1 to 5, we'll see the same chariot throne bringing the presence of God into the temple because we'll be there at the start of the millennium too. So just to briefly explain what this vision is, if you're looking at this vision, this chariot throne, what you'll see at the bottom is wheels within wheels, like a gyroscope, okay? wheels within wheels, four of them. And above these four wheels are four powerful angels or cherubim. And these are the cherubim that you'll see in heaven next to the throne. And above the cherubim, this firmament or expanse, or so we can understand it, like I call it a platform. And above the platform, there is a throne made of sapphire. And high above the throne, we have God, the glory of God, and most likely the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. So, Ezekiel 10, 1 and 2. And I looked, and there in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubim, there appeared something like a sapphire stone having the appearance of the likeness of a throne. Then he spoke to the man clothed with linen and said, Go in among the wheels under the cherub, fill your hands with coals of fire from among the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. And he went in as I watched. So as I said, the cherubim are very likely the same for a cherubim or mighty angels that are associated with God's presence and throne in Revelation 4, 4-6. to You remember what they're saying? They're constantly calling out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
who was and is and is to come. So we'll see them there as well. And a quote from Bloch, These cherubim are the living heavenly realities that the static sculptures in the inner sanctum that is inside the temple symbolize. They have come to earth from the heavenly throne room to transport the kabod or Shekinah glory, the visible sign of God's presence, out of his earthly dwelling place. Now, it says the likeness of a throne. It doesn't mention that Jesus is above the throne here, but we hear Jesus' voice. It's recorded that Jesus spoke from above the throne to the man clothed with linen. Now, remember, the man clothed with linen, he's actually an angel. And last week, we saw that he got his little writer's pen, and in this vision, he put a cross, the Hebrew T, on every person's head who was righteous, who was sighing and crying over the sin that was in the land. And then he said in verse 2, Fill your hands with coals of fire from among the cherubim. And so God now commands his angel to take the burning coals and scatter them over the city. So, you know, in previous chapters, there's been a prediction of famine and war and disease and you know slaughter but now we also learn that it's going to be burnt and in the vision the fire came from the throne of God himself so the origin of this judgment is God okay it's not the Babylonians the Babylonians were the instrument that God was using but this judgment actually came from God and so this vision actually shows where the origin of the the judgment is coming from. It doesn't matter. God could have used any nation to judge Israel. Uh, a quote from Feinberg. In Isaiah 6, the coals were for the purification of the prophet. Here they were for the destruction of the wicked. Where evil is concerned, it is true that our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12.29 And he went in as I watched. And what do we always notice? When God tells the angels to do something, they always do it. So, now the Shekinah glory is on the move and it's departing from the temple. And in verse 3, 4 and 5, Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in and the cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and paused over the threshold of the temple and the house was filled with the cloud and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory and the sound of the wings of the cherubim were heard even in the outer court like the voice of Almighty God when he speaks. So the cloud that filled the inner court. So you just want to link this to other places in the scriptures where this Shekinah glory, the presence of God, was revealed to man, the, the visible representation of God's character and presence. You might know some of these. When the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they had the fire by night and the cloud by day. That was the glory of the Lord. You can see Exodus 13, 21, 22. It's the cloud of glory that God spoke to Israel from, Exodus 16.10. It's a cloud from which God met with Moses and the others, and there's numerous references there in Exodus and Numbers. It's the cloud that stood by the door of the tabernacle, Exodus 33.9 and 10. It's the cloud from which God appeared to the high priest in the holy place inside the veil, Leviticus 16.2. That's above the mercy seat, those gold cherubim which were one piece with the lid of the mercy seat. It's the same cloud that filled the temple when Solomon dedicated it in 1 Kings chapter 8. It's the same cloud of Ezekiel's vision filling the temple of God with the brightness of his glory. Ezekiel chapter 10 verse 4. And interestingly, it's the same cloud of glory that overshadowed Mary when she conceived Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can see Luke one thirty-five. It's the same cloud present at the transfiguration of Jesus. Luke 9:34 and 35, and possibly it could be the same cloud of glory that received Jesus into heaven at his ascension. Acts 1 verse 9. So this is seen all through the Bible, God's visible display of his glory and his character. Now, who saw it? This amazing vision, this splendor of this glorious revelation of God's character. I think only Ezekiel, because the other people were so focused on their own self and their own sin that 
They missed it. You know, we can be focused on ourselves and God can be working around us and other people can be seeing it happen. Other people can be seeing God doing something, experiencing God working in their lives and then we are missing it. We're blind. Why? Because our eyes aren't open. We're focused on the wrong things. We're not looking. And a quote from Wright, he said, The sad thing was that Ezekiel was evidently the only person who saw the glory of God. The rest had eyes only for images, pictures, and the lesser glory of the sun. And in verse 4 it says, The glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and paused over the threshold of the temple. So here the Shekinah glory of God is on the move, and it's pausing as it's about to leave the temple. Now, it's interesting. There's no hint of it pausing and going in stepwise as it went in in Solomon's day. Why is it taking so long and it taking so many steps? Yeah, it's a reluctant departure. God doesn't want to leave. There's a quote from Paul here. Showing both his unwillingness to leave and giving them time to bethink themselves and return by repentance. And he stands where he might be seen both by priests and people that both might be moved to repentance. Now we look at the coals of fire for judgment in verses 6 to 8. Then it happened when he commanded the man clothed in linen, saying, Take fire from among the wheels, from among the cherubim. Then he went in and stood beside the wheels. And the cherub stretched out his hand from among the cherubim to the fire that was among the cherubim, and took some of it and put it into the hands of the man clothed with linen, who took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a man's hand under their wings, Remember, this is the chariot throne. In the middle of this chariot throne, there's a fire and coals. And so one of the four big angels reaches a hand in, takes some of the coals and gives it to the angel with the inkhorn, the one that marked all the believers. And again, the fire of God's judgment comes from the throne and glory of God itself. And a quote from Block, In addition to bringing the kabod of Yahweh down to him, the heavenly chariot, now arise with the coals of divine judgment for Jerusalem and will depart bearing the glory out of the temple and away from the city. And verse 7 it says, He put it into the hands of the man clothed with linen. So what's he going to do with it? What did verse 2 say? Scatter all over Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is going to burn. Literally. It has a literal and a spiritual application. Now, we're just going to quickly read through this next section. I'm not going to explain all of this because we've done it in chapter 1, and so it's really kind of important. You get lots of insight, the colors and the eyes and what everything means. It's really good, but I've already taught this in chapter 1, so if you want to know, go back to chapter 1. So you can get the notes or the teaching from the website or the podcast. But I will read it for now. And when I looked, there were four wheels by the cherubim, one wheel by one cherub and another wheel by each other cherub. Remember, there's four. The wheels appeared to have the color of a barrel stone. As for their appearance, all four looked alike, as it were, a wheel in the middle of a wheel. When they went, they went towards any of their four directions. They did not turn aside when they went, but followed in the direction the head was facing. They did not turn aside when they went. And their whole body, with their back, their hands and their wings, and the wheels that the four had, were full of eyes all around. As for the wheels, they were called in my hearing, wheel. Each one had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub, the second the face of a man the third the face of a lion, and the fourth the face of an eagle. And the cherubim were lifted up. This was a living creature I saw by the river Kiba. This is Ezekiel making this connection with his first vision. This is the same chariot throne. When the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them, and when the cherubim lifted their wings to mount up from the earth, that means to fly away, the same wheels also did not turn from beside them. They always went together. When the cherubim stood still, the wheel stood still, and when one was lifted up, the other lifted itself up, for the spirit of the living creature was in them. So wherever the cherubim went, the wheels went too. It was all one big chariot throne. Verse 18, Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. 
This is the chariot throne. And the cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. And they went out, the wheels were beside them, and they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. This is the living creature I saw under the God of Israel. Notice that, this is a living creature, this whole big chariot throne. It's not a mechanical thing, it's a living thing. Under the God of Israel, Jesus was high and lifted up above this throne. So this is the living creature I saw under the God of Israel by the river Kibar, and I knew they were cherubim. And he says that because in chapter 1 it doesn't say they were cherubim. He just says creatures, but now it says I knew they were cherubim, these mighty angels. Each one had four faces and each one four wings, and the likeness of the hands of a man was under their wings, and the likeness of their faces was the same as the faces which I had seen by the river Kiba, or Chiba, and their appearance and their persons. They each went straight forward. So again, I'm not going to explain most of that, but I just want to have a quick look at verses 18 and 19. It talks about the glory of God moving away from the temple. Verse 18 says, And the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold or the doorway of the temple and stood over the cherubim. So this is moving from the doorway to mounting kind of the chariot throne. The glory of the Lord is now with God on the chariot throne. In verse 19 it says, The cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth. And so basically we have liftoff. God's throne is airborne, carrying away with it his Shekinah glory from the temple. So you can imagine God coming on his throne to the temple. The glory comes out from the temple, mounts onto the throne with God and goes back away from the temple. And verse 19, they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house. Again, they paused again. Again, to summarize, the glory of God traveled from the Holy of Holies to the threshold of the temple building, across the court of the temple, and now stood at the door of the east gate. It's moving away from the temple and it's about to leave the temple courts. Now what do we read in Isaiah 43, 1-5? Where is he going to come from? The east. So the way he's going is the way he's going to come back. Okay, now chapter 11. The judgment of the false prophets and false teachers. Let's read that. Verses 1-13. to Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the Lord's house, which faces eastward. And there at the door of the gate were twenty-five men. Remember these guys were worshipping the sun? Among whom I saw Jazaniah the son of Azor and Pelatiah the son of Beniah, princes of the people. And he said to me, Son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and give wicked counsel in the city, who say, The time is not near to build houses. This city is the cauldron, and we are the meat. Therefore prophesy against them. Prophesy, O son of man. Then the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me and said to me, Speak, thus says the Lord. Thus you have said, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. You have multiplied your slain in this city, and you have filled its streets with the slain. Therefore thus says the Lord God, Your slain whom you have laid in its midst, they are the meat, and this city is the cauldron, but I shall bring you out of the midst of it. You have feared the sword, and I will bring a sword upon you, says the Lord God. And I will bring you out of its midst, and deliver you into the hands of strangers, and execute judgments on you. You shall fall by the sword, and I will judge you at the border of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. This city shall not be your cauldron, nor shall you be the meat in its midst. I will judge you at the border of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord. For you have not walked in my statutes, nor executed my judgments, but you have done according to the customs of the Gentiles, which are all around you. Now it happened while I was prophesying that Pelatai the son of Beniah died. Then I fell on my face and cried with a loud voice and said, Ah, Lord God, will you make a complete end of the remnant of Israel? So again, in verse 1, it says, The Spirit lifted me up. So where is Ezekiel physically? He's in Babylon. But by the Spirit, in this vision, he's in Jerusalem. And this vision concerns the spiritual corruption of Jerusalem and the judgment coming to it. And in verse 1 also, at the gate, the 25 men, probably the same 
group of men we read about in chapter 8, verse 16. They had their backs to the temple and worshipping the sun as they faced the east gate. And it says about them in verse 2, These are the men who devise iniquity and give wicked counsel in this city. So wicked leaders will lead people astray. So bad government, it's not good. And they're saying this, The time is not near to build houses, this city is the cauldron and we are the meat. So what does it mean? Well, it's confusing. If you just look at it, but if you take it in the context of the chapter, you can figure it out. So I'm standing on the shoulders of those who've gone before me. <laughs> so in the context of the rest of the chapter, it seems they were defiantly saying that they would be safe in Jerusalem, despite what the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel had been telling them. And a quote from David Guzik, It seems better to regard the time is not near to build houses as a question, not a statement. Isn't it time to build houses? This was a statement of confidence that Jerusalem would be safe and delivered from the Babylonian threat, just as pieces of meat are safe in a covered cauldron, so they claimed to be safe. So if it's inside the pot, then it's safe. Another quote from Taylor, This sentiment expresses the confidence that all will be well and, if building houses is taken as a symbol of peaceful activity, it advocates a policy of ignoring the threat of a further Babylonian invasion. Another quote from Wisby, the innuendo in this metaphor was that the people in Jerusalem were the choice cuts of meat, while the exiles in Babylon were just the scraps and rejected pieces. So do you get the idea here? They're saying that everything's alright for us, we're safe, go away, we're not listening to you. In verse 5, Then the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me and said to me, Speak, thus says the Lord, thus you have said, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. <laughs> he knows their thoughts. For you have multiplied your slain in the city, and you have filled its streets with the slain. So what does a corrupt government do? It leads to crime and violence. So as our government becomes more corrupt, so will our culture and it will become more and more violent and corrupt. Now, in verse 7, God is going to turn around this saying and put it back on them. So verse 7 it says, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Your slain whom you have laid in its midst, they are the meat, and this city is the cauldron. So, a quote by David Guzik, Ezekiel turned the defiant claim of confidence into a prediction of doom. They wouldn't be protected in the cauldron, they'd be cooked and then devoured. Another quote from Trapp, Thus their own words, spoken in mockery, are wittily retorted upon them and driven back down their throats, as it were. Block says, No longer is Jerusalem a crock or a pot in which food is securely stored, she is a pot over the fire in which the meat is cooked. <laughs> So you see how God's, through Ezekiel, has turned it around. They thought they were going to safe, and God turns it around and says, no, 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 you're going to be cooked in there. Verse 7 to 11, it says, But I shall bring you out of the midst of it. You have feared the sword, and I will bring a sword upon you, says the Lord God, and I will bring you out of its midst and deliver you into the hands of strangers and execute judgments on you. You shall fall by the sword. I will judge you at the border of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. This city shall not be your cauldron, nor shall you be the meat in its midst. I will judge you at the border of Israel. So, Ezekiel is making a prediction here. He's saying that these corrupt leaders who have been deceiving the people would survive the siege of Jerusalem, but would then face judgment. They would stand before Nebuchadnezzar at Riblah, and that's at the northern border of Israel. And what would happen to them? They'd be executed. And there's lots of passages that Record these events where the princes and the leaders were executed before Nebuchadnezzar. I'll just read one. Jeremiah 52 verse 10. Then the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and he killed all the princes of Judah in Riblah. So, just as Ezekiel prophesied, predicted, all the leaders of the princes, they survived the famine, but because they were the leaders and they were corrupt and they kept a lot of the food for themselves. But they were taken to Nebuchadnezzar 
Ribla, the northern border of Israel, and they were killed there. Verse 12, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So again, when the people saw that the fate of the leaders went exactly as God said, they would go, yep, well, God said that would happen. God was right. God's in control. The purpose of God's prophecies and his discipline is that we come back into renewed fellowship with him. Now, why did it happen? Verse 12, for you have not walked in my statutes nor executed my judgments, but have done according to the customs of the Gentiles, which are all around you. So, this is an application for us too. Why were they being judged? They were just like the nations around them. So, just like Lot was influenced by the world instead of being influenced to the world, and because of that, because he was influenced by the world, he suffered in their judgment. So, these worldly men would face judgment when the time of judgment came. And again, we said, I think last week, if we'd only judge ourselves, then we wouldn't have to face God's divine discipline. And God's justice is fair. It says in verse 12, Having done according to the customs of the Gentiles, which are all around you. And once again, punishment or consequence fits the crime. If they want to be like the surrounding pagan nations, fine, go and be in the pagan nations and live like they do. Sometimes the worst thing that God can do to us is to give us what we want. And sometimes the only way for us to learn that what we want is bad for us is for God to give us what we want. It hurts us and we go, ah, okay, that's why God didn't want me to have this. And that's what God did with the idols with Israel. They wanted idols. They were so keen on worshipping idols. And God sent to the land of Babylon. And it basically one of the scriptures it says that Babylon was crazy with idols. It was the idol center of the world. You know, basically they had idols upon idols. And God says, you want idols? Go. Go to the, the capital of idols. And it did kill them, you know. When they came back, they never worshipped idols ever again. So God does the same with us, I believe. Now, in verse 13, Ezekiel's response to the death of one of the princes or leaders, it says, Now it happened when I was prophesying that Patala, the son of Benaiah, died. Then I fell on my face and cried out with a loud voice and said, Ah, Lord God, will you make a complete end of the remnant of Israel? So, at this time, when he's prophesying, one of the princes, one of the rulers, dies. And you see Ezekiel's heart of love and compassion towards even his enemies, the false prophets. Remember, he was standing real strong against these guys, and so was Jeremiah. But in his heart, he didn't want to see them perish. And that's God's heart towards people as well. As we read at the start, he wants all men to be saved. And we need to have that same heart towards other people. A quote from Feinberg, Pelatiah may have been the leader of those who scoffed at God's word. His death was a foretaste of what awaited the rest whom Ezekiel had warned. Now, we come to the promise of the regathering of Israel and renewed relationship with God, and this includes the new covenant. It looks forward to the new covenant. And this is 11 verses 14 to 24. We're not going to read it today, but just to put this in perspective, to get the big picture, we need to recognize that when God judges, he also shows mercy. And there's this principle, in wrath, God always remembers mercy. And the question I'm going to ask is, how can God be both a God of wrath and a God of mercy? Here, is a great practical example. In the midst of a seemingly hopeless situation with Ezekiel's prophecy telling him that God had left the temple, God leaves them with this promise, a precious promise, that his presence will be with them wherever they may end up. He said, we'll read it next week, I will be a little tabernacle for you wherever you go. So yes, the temple's destroyed, but I'm going to be with you. I'll be a little tabernacle wherever you are gone. You can't get to the temple, so I'll go with you. 
So God has not deserted his people. It's an awesome passage, but we don't have time to read it today. So next week, and also explaining the new covenant more. So God never leaves his people without hope. Do you realize that if God actually punished us as we deserve, we'd be wiped out? And I was thinking about this whole thing of in wrath, God always remembers mercy. And I think the cross is the greatest example of God's wrath and mercy coexisting together at the same time. The Father poured out his wrath on Jesus at the same time, his showing mercy to a guilty humanity. So wrath and mercy at the same time. So consider the hope that we have in the following verses. Isaiah 53 verse 6, talking about the cross. It says, All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Isaiah 60 verse 10, second half, It says, for in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. So you see that there's always mercy with that wrath. He never judges our sin according to what we deserve. Habakkuk 3.2 from the NLT, I have heard all about you, Lord. I am filled with awe by your amazing works. In this time of our deep need, help us again as you did in years gone by. And in your anger, remember your mercy. That's a good prayer. Isaiah 54, verses 4 to 10. And this is in the context of what we're reading about today, the destruction of Judah and the temple and Jerusalem. God says to them in Isaiah, Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you, like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God. So yes, there was this discipline. They did feel the separation from God. But look at verse 7 and 8. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath, a little wrath, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. For this is like the waters of Noah to me, for as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no longer cover the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you nor rebuke you. So you see, God's discipline is temporary, but his love is eternal. And there will come a time when the nation of Israel will be his special people in the millennium and they will be walking with him really, really closely in the new covenant experience with the Spirit in them, working through them, and they will be obedient as a nation. And so this is a promise that this is talking about, that I will not be angry with you nor rebuke you. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, But my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has mercy on you. Again, the context is the nation of Israel. But we can apply it to ourselves too. Now, Psalm 103, some of my favorite verses in the Bible, uh, reading from verses 8 to 14. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. So again, slow to anger, abounding in mercy. So you can read these Old Testament passages and go, oh man, God's nasty. (laughs) Well, sin needs to be judged. But if God let rip, you know, the wrath that they actually deserved, 
there'd be no more Israel. Completely gone. But in his mercy, God left them the remnant, and he's given them an awesome future that they do not deserve. They did not deserve the remnant, and they don't deserve the future that they're starting to experience now. They're regathering into the land. They're still rebelling against him. As a nation, they're still in rebellion against God. But God in his mercy has says, I'm going to put up with that until you turn back to me at the end of the tribulation and then for that thousand years and forever after that, you're going to be my people and I'm going to keep my promises. You're going to be my people who will follow me and obey me. And I memory verse, the context is Israel. It applies to us, yes, but it's Israel. They will follow him. They will obey him because they'll have his spirit in them. So Father, I thank you for this awesome opportunity to discover more about who you are. And Lord, we're seeing, uh, and it's difficult to read, judgment. You're judging sin. But Lord, we just, especially next week, look forward to seeing how good you are and the promises you're making, which are completely undeserved, and that you don't judge us as much as what our sins deserve. Lord, thank you for your mercy. Help us to always keep that in mind. When we go through discipline, Lord, it's never as much as we really deserve. It feels like it's more, but it's never as much. Help us, Father, to be thankful and to recognize that in wrath you do remember mercy. And we also just think of the tribulation where in your mercy a multitude of people that no one can count is going to be saved in that tribulation by the 144,000 witnesses. Jewish evangelists. So again, thank you for your mercy. Well, none of us deserve to be saved, but in your mercy, you have done that. So we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.